we have a hope bias, right? We have a hope deficit because we don't get enough. There's a lot of problems in the world. Don't don't get me wrong, but what we see is is skewered even worse than it actually is. There are solutions and people doing incredible things all over the place. That's one of the fringe benefits of my work. I meet all these kind of neat people like yourself and other that are just doing great stuff everywhere. I keep that in the back of my mind. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Doherty. Thomas is a clinical psychologist in practice and in scholarship. He is known throughout the country and across the world for bringing forward awareness of eco-psychology, the understanding that psychological well-being is significantly affected by our relationships with the environments in which we live and make our lives. Thomas started the scholarly journal Eco-Psychology and has developed many of the therapeutic approaches used for supporting people experiencing climate anxiety and other climate change-related emotional challenges. He offers therapeutic sessions to support individuals, couples, families, and groups. He consults with corporate entities interested in supporting the eco-psychological health of their employees, and he provides support to therapists in practice who are interested in building eco-psychology into their own work. So thank you so much, Thomas, for joining me today on How It Looks From Here. Um, the first thing that I want to ask you, though, as a kind of formal part of this um, interaction, is from where you sit right now, and you can take this metaphorically or you can take it quite literally, how does the world look to you right now, today, in this moment? Well, the, the, world, the world looks um, bright right now. I'm, it's, it, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I'm in my, my home office, my kind of nerve center here, and there's a number of windows, and it's uh, we've had a lot of really wet, cold weather here, really dark, gloomy weather, but the last few days have been clear and cold in kind of a fall way. We've had our first frost um, the last yesterday or the day before was our first frost. So I've got that sort of um, fall, um, the earliest earliest smells of winter kind of feeling in terms of in terms of the natural world and you know, leaves turning bright red and all that sort of stuff. Um, and earlier today, I, I, I do a training um, group for mental health therapists that are working on climate change issues and wanting to get schooled up on climate, climate work and helping the public. And so I, I did a, a, a group with them this morning online, which I do. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's where I'm at today, kind of 
focused on um, focused on climate change, mental health, a lot of the stuff I'm doing. Yeah. Which is the focus of your professional life. How did it, how did it go today? How do you how does it look to you? The world look to you when you have these interactions with colleagues of yours. Well, you know, it provides meaning for me. Um, people are always wondering, like, what's my place and wh- wh- where do I plug in and how can I make a difference? So for me, I get a lot of consolation from helping other people. I mean, I would work for the public as well, but with the, with the mental health folks, and there's also other folks that join my groups, like teachers and artists and various things. But, um, you know, it, it's a way for me to influence a whole group of people that are... Um, seeking to understand better their own, like the term I one of the, one of the concepts I use is environmental identity. So, you know, your environmental identity, your sense of self regarding nature and the natural world and your values and your beliefs, um, which is um, not often something that people get a chance to really be with and sit with and talk about and understand and give language to and celebrate. And so, so I'm helping them do that. And work through their own personal um, understandings and climate grief and loss and anxieties and, you know, lifestyle changes so then they can actually be present for their clients and for the public because therapists, you know, obviously don't get taught anything about this in, in graduate school. Yeah, it's unlikely. So anyway, I, 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 I see hopefully there's a ripple effect from me working with these people so that you know, that gives me a sense of, you know, accomplishment. Yeah. Can you tell um, a story of something you've seen, a, a change that you've seen in a person you've worked with or a couple you've worked with or a family um, and how this kind of work has really been something that's anchored them further in who they are and how they are in the world? Oh, yeah. There's just so many, there's so many examples Um I mean, in, in terms of the actual therapists, you know, these, these folks are, uh, you know, um, I'm supervising some, some therapists who have, you know, started doing walking, walking meetings with their clients. And so they're putting their services on their website and then people are coming in to see them. And so they're, you know, kind of breaking the bounds of the traditional office uh, format and, you know, helping them to, like for people that, if people are listening that do like have done outdoor recreation or outdoor adventure, professional outdoors people, you know, you have to think about your risk management and, you know, your, who's your client and what are you doing and how do you sequence your activities and things like that. And so, you know, I'm helping therapists do that and see them launch onto their careers or taking or experimenting with doing their own public speaking, you know, talking to other psychologists and therapists or work, you know, working with the public. Um, and there's a whole broad group of, uh, so-called the climate conscious therapists, you know, that are trying to come together and meet. And so, um, you know, I'm, I've been able to have some of those leaders in that group come to do my group and kind of do to get some schooling. So I feel like I've, I've just got, you know, uh, again, for me, I feel like I'm able to I've been doing this for a while, often on my own or often kind of on the on the fringe. Um, so it's really nice to see it more more interested in people more interested in the mainstream, you know. Um, and then with the public, um, you know, we do we talk about clients and in, in cases case studies. You know, I was using a, a kind of a 
composite study today to train the therapist of a couple. You know, they're the names I use for this couple are Sally and Martin, but they're, you know, Sally has got the classic issue where she's concerned about environmental issues and, and recycling and wants to, wants to do, you know, behaviors around the home, like recycling and things. And, and is concerned that Martin isn't as interested in that, you know, but, you know, helping, helping Sally to understand her environmental values and what motivates her. She's got strong moral values, strong ethical values about nature and the natural world and what's right and wrong. And that drives her, her understanding of recycling and things. Whereas, you know, you know, Martin's more driven by um, empirical values, like scientific values and things like that. And he was actually <clears throat> skeptical of recycling, not not because it's a bad thing, because he didn't think it actually worked, or even maybe it was even a scam. You know, that things aren't actually recycled. You know, and so, but rather than fighting about that, helping her to see her values, and then her to see Martin's values help them to have better conversations about it and honor each other's differences and diversity, you know, and then Martin actually is concerned as well about, you know, plastics leaching out of landfills and, and he's more of a science-minded person. He understands all this sort of stuff. And so, but his stuff comes out more intellectually and more in terms of science, not so much in terms of the moral, moral stuff, but, you know, helping them to come together in their relationship yeah, a better and see each other's sides and collaborate a little more. Yeah, yeah. Yet in the context of of um, of climate, that's that's as you said earlier. That's a thing that people like us who have been on the the side of training people in in as as counselors and and social science social applied social scientists of any kind are haven't been encouraged to include that. So you were saying something, though, about couples varying. Yeah, I, I mean, again, um, they, um, you know, people will clash on the surface level with some of this stuff on the behavioral level. But if they don't, you know, if they aren't taught to think about their feelings and understand where they're, what their motivations and their values, then it becomes this kind of black and white, you're with me or you're against me. Uh-huh. kind of thing whereas if i understand people's motivations and their values and i can say oh okay you're you're approaching this slightly differently how can we find a middle ground here because the sad part is most people don't disagree that much really on the basics right. but they do disagree on some of the on the on the practice um things and and um you know it's the same for groups it's the same for schools and businesses sure. i mean in our whole country obviously we've got a ton of polarization, um, not you know, not to mention the broad polarization between kind of conservatives and, and progressives, but even even among the progressives, there's a lot of polarization. Oh my, among different. Yeah, styles. we're just really good at it. <laughs> yeah, you know, so there's, yeah. there's these stylistic clashes, which are ultimately really variations on basic values and then um, strategies. So anyway, I use a lot in my work, I use a lot of research from environmental psychology and people have studied all this kind of stuff about different values and different political mindsets and and all this sort of stuff and all the steps to a, to an environmental behavior. And I break this down for the therapist so they can understand it. Um, and that's what's unique about me because there's not many people that have stepped, you know, worked through the social science and also the therapy at the same time. So yeah. it's really... It's really neat, um, but it's not easy. And it is, I mean, even if people can 
as a couple get a, get in a sense of their values. The dilemma about recycling and plastic still continues. It is ultimately a social political issue. Both things, though, right? I mean, that's the thing that I think is so beautiful about your work is that you're really dealing with this question that we're posing in this podcast. How does it look from there? And it looks different to Martin than it does to Sally. You know, and what they haven't had is the opportunity to re- to to slow down enough to get it that they see the world. The world looks different out of each of their eyes. And so it's no more correct either way. But I guess the question in the conversation for them is, how do you do you and how do I do me relative to the the difficulty that we're facing in a larger policy and um, practice arena? Yeah, exactly. You know, and um, I mean, one of the one of my <clears throat> I mean, I have a lot of catchphrases, you know, there's one is the, you know, um, capital I and small I issues. So like the capital I issues are the big things that we want to we want to work on in the world, you know, social justice or climate change or ecology or conservation, you know, and then the lowercase I is our stuff, our own personal issues, you know, our own um, insecurities or imposter syndrome or you know, worries or, you know, fatigue or stressors, Mm -hmm. you know, so helping people to realize they're both, they're both in the room. Um, you know, so when you're talking to people like how, how does it look from here? You're often toggling between those, those two, right? The capital I issues and the lower, lowercase I. What I'm concerned about are things that have happened to me in my life, obviously influence the issues that I think are important. Um, uh, and, you know, the issues that I work on and the, the information I take in, even the news really affects myself, you know, my, my, my body, you know, my mind, my nervous system. So, you know, helping people to tease that out a little bit, you know, so people like, you know, Sally, that's helpful to start to, you know, toggle between those two things. So it's both. We have both. I can have, like I joke, I, uh-huh. I, I can have issues with authority and issues with authority. So I can have issues with the authority uh-huh. structures in the society for various reasons, <laughs> yeah. but I can also have my own authority issues based on my personality right. and my, my relationship with my parents and my teachers and stuff like that. And so it's not one or the other, uh, it's both. And so sometimes we get sort of a eco-perfectionism uh, eco or kind of a, a thing where we, we forget that we have lowercase i issues floating around and we just get all into our big uppercase I um, and clash around that. And so bringing in the values is, is, is in a way getting, getting some of that lowercase I stuff coming out. Well, yeah, and thank you for that. I, I do think that, so. I, you know, in the work that, that Gary and I have done on this full ecology stuff, one of the things, and it's probably significantly because of my bias, but not alone, I would say that I was thinking as you were speaking that when you get more than one person in the room, but you don't even have to have a second person, our challenge throughout life is to tell ourselves the story of who we are and to be open to the story of who others are. And that, of course, is situated in the larger culture of a lot of others in story with everybody else. And so here we are in this constant, I guess, small I in these small issues. Um, If I don't see those, I'm not going to be able to be of much help in addressing 
climate breakdown. That's one of the points that we suggest. And that makes me think of, I, I haven't read this article of yours, but I did see that you wrote something that has something like the title, Why, we're, why Are We in Love with the Earth? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was actually, you know, a way to get at those values, you know, and, and because we, you know, there's, um, you know, in the social science, they have a whole model of, you know, your values are relate to your beliefs and understanding of the world to, to create your, your um, um, obligation, your norm, you know, like my, my sense of obligation to act, right? And if I, um, if I have basic, if I have some kind of environmental or altruistic value, um, or any kind of value, even ego, egocentric value, just about myself and my family, and then I understand something about the world in ecology, and then I see a threat to myself or things that I value, and I, and I feel like I can, I can do something about it, then I feel obligated to act, right? And so then I'll want to, my action will go public or private or activism or, or whatever. So there's like a roadmap there. Um, and it has, to, it has to line up a little bit. Um, you know, because if I, what happens, unfortunately, for a lot of people is they have the values, they have the information, we get tons of terrible, you know, really troubling information about threats, so they have this kind of broad, bubbling eco-anxiety, um, but then they might not feel they have a sense of self-efficacy, like, my actions don't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, or they, or they, you know, or they, you know, they feel... They feel like they should take an action, but they're not sure what to do, you know, or even when they do take an action, then they cut themselves down and say, oh, this doesn't really matter, you know. Right. So anyway, that's, these are, it's helpful to reflect this back to people, you know, this, this kind of, this kind of stuff. But even broader, we have a story, like we have an environmental identity, so we have an eco timeline, we have a whole story of our life. That's one of the exercises I'll do with people too, is just draw a timeline out of your of your story, your eco story, your environmental identity, what you know, childhood experiences, where you grew up. Many people start with where they grew up, the home territory, where they, you know, from Montana or from the south, from New Orleans or from Pacific Northwest. You know, um, uh, their teaching, the teachers, their mentors, early experiences of, of any kind, and then of course, as we get older, we start to direct our own life. So, like where we travel to. And, what we what we did in school and what we do for work and, and people have all kinds of special points on their timeline like really you know key key moments key turning points and things like that so that's that's why we love the earth too we have that this whole story this whole timeline but sometimes we don't think about it um, but the funny thing is once you ask someone to do that timeline I've never had a person not be able to do it like as soon as <laughs> as soon as I invite that. They just, if I do a group and we're all drawing these timelines out, just, I, I have to pull the people back because they just get so into drawing out and getting into their timelines and all this sort of stuff. Um, um, and then there's also dark stuff in people's timelines too. There could be losses and traumas and, you know, environmental losses. Uh, and then of course, you bring, if you bring in a social justice and, and sort of um, social class, then, you know, people have really different timelines based on where they grew up and you know, what they experienced and things like that. So it's another version. Like when we compare our timelines, we can really start to see, you know, our different stories and our different values and understand differences. I've done stuff like that with environmental groups and meetings where we'll have a bunch of people do these things. We'll have like a variety of people 
you know, like white environmental types and Hispanic people that are working with, with, you know, Hispanic nature groups where they have a much different social background and things like that. And, you know, comparing the timelines, you know, exposes privilege and social class, gender, big stuff, big, big things about gender, even in the same family, the, the, the traditional masculine versus feminine gender roles are different, you know. Certainly in Montana, that will still play out, I think, in some ways, you know, and how people interact with nature and the natural world, who holds what value, all this kind of stuff. It's fascinating stuff. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. There are these notions, well, this is my my overlay on these notions. You know, you hear about uh, local foods, eat locally, and you hear about investing locally. And the idea, as I've come to understand it, is that there, if, if I invest, for example, if I have any extra money within 100 miles of my home, and you do that too, and everybody else does that if they have any extra money, then what you've got is a bunch of overlapping circles. And so the whole game is invested in theoretically. And so same thing with local foods. If we're all eating from within 100 miles of around ourselves insofar as we're able, then that supports the ones who are are, um, cultivating and preparing those foods. I wonder if that's helpful to how we know what to do in these very anxious and challenging times uh, around climate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a you know that's where that's when we talk about getting into the action. I mean, part of it is helping people to understand their values and their identity and what motivates them and why they love the earth and their timelines. And then they, they get into that, like, what's the, what's the right action for you personally and what is your style, your style of engagement? And so when I hear that local, you know, localism in, in economy or, or um, food, that, that's, a, that's a particular style. You know, I think people are, you know, local or global in their outlook. And for some people, it's really meaningful I mean for a lot of people it's really meaningful it's only meaningful if it's local quite frankly you know um, and so that's going to translate into your political um, style um, and into your economic style and things like that um, and so again it's a dimension it's a, it's a it's kind of a dimension and the localism you know can go in a different in a few different ways. It can lead to tribalism and really kind of nativism. And yet at the same time, these circles overlap. And so to get all nativist about that is to, you know, mess with the functionality of everybody's circle. Yeah, because the, 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 the bright side of localism is it's, it's place-based. You know, it's, it's placed in a, right. real, it's in a real place, in a real landscape, in a watershed, in a, in a geographic region, in a bioregion. Um, in a ter- terroir, you know, in terms of land, um, in a food shed, all these kinds of things, in, in tribal, tribal boundaries and more of an indigenous style, you know. Um, and that's really, really important. I mean, but there is that, 
critical tension because I we're not uh, we can't be isolated anymore because we live in an interconnected world. So we do have to kind of figure out a system that honors the local and then helps you know things to things to move across. It's not a new idea. Obviously, native people have been no, no. trading trading across long distances, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so, um, but anyway, yeah, that that I like because it gets into the politics and the political mindset of people, which is yet another kind of values piece. And I, I just really love kind of mapping this stuff out and and um, talking about it because um, again, a lot of this is unconscious. They don't, they don't kind of people don't kind of realize what's motivating them in that way, but. But I do think local place-based stuff is really a primal value for a lot of people. Well, and then the other thing that I think of is this work that you did way back in your training at UMass, I think, on mindfulness. And even though that was well ahead of the, the popularity and really relative acceptance that that term has gotten um, by now, relative acceptance. Um, I'm curious how it, it seems to me that this echoes back to the same thing. If people, I, I heard in your last podcast, the woman named Ro talking about taking to going to the hinterland, taking some time out. And so that made me think of this, this mindfulness invitation and this bias that I have because of my style, which is we must get as clean as it's a it's a simultaneous thing, but get as clean as possible within us to be clean in our relationships and clean in our relationship with the natural world. My bias. Um, but so speak a little bit about what you've brought forward from that training you got in mindfulness. Yeah, so that takes me back to the around the turn of the millennium there, 1999, when I was in graduate school um, and... Um, got a chance to, I was in New Hampshire going to graduate school, I got a chance to be an intern at UMass Medical Center, they had the Center for Mindfulness and Healthcare. These days, mindfulness meditation is a big part of most mental health therapies, and and it's recognized in hospitals and things like that, you know, the whole stress reduction and mm-hmm. um, benefit of being mindful and stopping and meditating and influence of kind of Buddhist, Buddhist kind of thought, contemplative thought. Um, but that, yeah, that was still relatively new and still being kind of uh, proved out into the, in the science. Um, but um, yeah, that, that came about because I was studying health, health psychology and um, working in a cardiac rehab unit actually with people that were recovering from heart disease and heart, you know, open, open heart surgery and things like that. And, um, wow. you know, so a big part of that work was helping these people to calm down their nervous systems. And, sure. Um, as people, listeners, or anyone that knows, if you've had a heart problem or a heart attack, then people get really worried about stress and about having you know stress to their system. So they have to really learn. Um, but it was also an example of really watching people struggling to change, you know, really ingrained behaviors. Um, but anyway, the mindfulness piece comes comes up again and again. A big part of the emotional, a big part of the environmental work, environmental psychology work, is uh, emotional. Um, because if I don't get my emotions in order, it's hard for me to look at the facts or look at the policy. Um, so the mindfulness is a way to, what I say is, you know, reclaim our nervous system, you know, because our, Thank we, you. Yes. Our, our nervous system gets jacked up by the news and social media and technology and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier before we started our talk, I've been doing a news fast the last couple of days where I've been consciously pulling away from 
network news and all kinds of news for a couple of days, um, which I will do from time to time. But I, I, I provocatively did it right at, at the day of the election because I had told my clients, like, if you've, if you've voted and you've supported candidates, then election day is a day off for you. You don't have to do anything on that day. Your work is done. Let the system go and then, you know, wait a couple of days and, and then see, you know, see where the dust settles, right? Because we know it takes time for the election to be sorted out. Um, and that's a radical suggestion, right? Because most people are so locked into the news and feel feel like it's their duty to, to be hanging on every result. And you know how stressful that can be and how much of yeah. an emotional setup that is. So, so you know, being mindful. And then, you know, I was really mindful of, oh, I'm kind of feeling cravings. Like, I, <laughs> I want to look uh-huh. at the news. I'm curious what's happening. <laughs> I'm curious yeah. what's happening in the Oregon election, for example. There's big stuff going on here. And... Uh, you know, we all know about some of it. This is a particularly tough election cycle with a lot of really odd, really polarized things going on. And so just noticing the poll to want to get on the, the New York Times or whatever website and check out things, um, feeling lonely, like, oh, I'm not a part of things, you know, I'm, uh-huh. you know, and feeling a little bit um, with my own thoughts, even in those moments, like that five or 10 minutes where I would, between work tasks, where I would typically turn my attention to scrolling the news. I was like, oh, I can't do that now. So what should I do instead? So that's all, that's all kind of pieces of the mindfulness there. Um, you know, um, so it, it goes in the behavioral direction, like, okay, let me just wait a second before I take action. Let me, let me, let me be able to not do anything for a minute uh, and just be present, um, which is really liberating. But then, of course, in terms of the natural world, when we're mindful, we're more, we more notice things like the weather and the birds sure. singing and the, the uh-huh. change of the seasons. And that, that nature observation requires mindfulness. You know, Connection with our place requires mindfulness. Otherwise, we're just in our heads. You know? So yeah. it's a foundational piece. Well, I wonder um, what you would say not really advice, but suggestions. You know, what would you say from how the world looks to you and what you know, what would you say to our listeners? Uh, what would you offer as suggestions to them here as we close up? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think some, some interesting homework is to, is, to, is to think about your, think about this idea of environmental identity. Right. That's a good one because it's it's kind of a it's sort of neutral, like a lot of the my take on it is that everyone has an environmental identity. You come from a different part of the country, different age. Right. So it's not that you have one or don't. It's that you have we have different kinds. It's just like our, our we know about our identity around gender or sexual orientation or cultural identity or regional identity. We know there's different, there's different flavors of identity. And we're, we're taught to think about this and talk about this and honor this. But environmental identity is really a good idea. It's ready for prime time. Like, think about your own environmental identity and how, it, how you think about it. And then talk about it with one other person, you know, and say, hey, I've been, I've been really thinking about this idea of environmental identity. I have this timeline. And if I look at my life, there's these different things that influence who I am. You know, um, just like my gender identity or other kinds of identity. And, you know, this is some of the things I've thought about. What do you think about your environmental identity? And, and just, just, just have a dialogue about that um, with your grandparents or with your neighbor, with your kids. Um, but it's open-ended. It's, it doesn't mean you have an environmentalist identity. Don't make that mistake. 
That's a uh-huh. kind of environmental identity. Sure. But but I could have I could be a hunter or a business person or conservative or liberal or black or white. But those that doesn't matter. There's we all have different kinds of environmental identities. Rural, urban. Um, that could be really an interesting conversation that cuts on a different level than politics. So that's that's the kind of a thing I think is just interesting to think about. Yeah, we all live in an environment, and we've all been affected our whole lives by the different environments in which we've lived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, that's a, that's a start, you know. Um, yeah. And then obviously taking a taking a tip from me and, you know, being moder- moderating our news intake and being clear on, it's like a diet. Uh, I've been focusing <laughs> on solution-focused journalism. You know, if you look up the, the, the solutions journalism news tracker, you know, they, they're focusing on journalism that is focused on specific issues, that talks about the issue, what works, what doesn't work. It's very different than the typical doom scrolling that people do, which is a lot of problems. Ninety. Only about 2 to 3% of news that we see about the climate is positive. Most is right. very negative. And so we, we have a hope bias, right? We have a hope deficit because we don't get enough. There's a lot of problems in the world, don't, don't get me wrong. But th- what we see is, is skewered even worse than it actually is. There are solutions and people doing incredible things all over the place. That's one of the fringe benefits of my work. I meet all these kind of neat people like yourself and other that are just doing great stuff everywhere. In every state, in yeah. every town, in every city, and so I, I, I keep that in the back of my mind to counteract the kind of doom, the doom, the doom piece. When and you're saying uh, check out the solutions. Can you really um, Google solutions news? Yeah, if you Google solutions focused journalism, um, you'll okay. it'll take you to this. Let me just find the um, the URL because there's a there's a few, you have to dig for this a little bit. Um, you know, um, if you go to solutionsjournalism.org, right, solutionsjournalism.org, okay. and find their, their story tracker, you know, and you can look Great. at different issues. And it'll just tell you these stories, but they're very specific, they're actionable, and it counteracts this kind of broad, vague, doom stuff that we, we get all the time. Thank you. We'll make sure we put that on the, the show notes as well. Great. Thomas, thank you so much for taking this time. Really, yeah. Mary, it's really nice. I appreciate your work, and I've always admired your work, so it's really nice to connect. You can learn more about Thomas and his work at his website, selfsustain.com. That's selfsustain.com. Also, check out the podcast Thomas offers with his colleague Finnish scholar Panu Pikala, Climate Change and Happiness. You can find that at climatechangeandhappiness.com. Thomas is a tireless advocate for the well-being of humanity as we live with and within the natural environments of our planet. Visit his website. Check out his writings. You'll be glad you did. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson, and available in bookstores everywhere. And now, before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. 
If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Gary Ferguson. Music by Gary Ferguson and Cedar Mathers Wynn. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.